Welcome back, guys. And in this episode of the podcast, I'm very honored to have Dr. Jake Lenarden and Eric Helms join me for a discussion on all things eating disorders and body image disorders. And for a little bit of a background, Jake is actually a very good friend of mine. We've been friends since we were 15, uh, known each other for many, many years. Jake was actually one of the primary influences in my fitness uh, career at a very, very early age. We used to train together, play football, and even diet uh, against each other. We would challenge each other. And what many people don't know about me and potentially Jake is that we developed some seriously unhealthy behaviors around our diet and exercise. And Jake then went on to study psychology where he's got his PhD in eating disorders and body image disorders. So it was really, really interesting to have a chat with him and Eric today on how we define and diagnose eating disorders and body image disorders, their prevalence in the fitness industry, uh, the causes of uh, such eating uh, and body image disorders, as well as how we approach this uh, from a coaching perspective and what athletes should be trying to do uh, if they do find themselves developing some unhealthy uh, behaviors. And it was a really interesting conversation and one that I think uh, hasn't been had enough in the online fitness circles. So I hope you guys get a lot out of this one. Before we get into things, a few shameless plugs. Uh, very pumped to announce that I have uh, a webinar coming up on all things hypertrophy. It'll be held online on December the 1st, and joining me will be Director of Science at JPS, Lyndon Purcell, as well as Brian Miner. So we'll be covering all things hypertrophy, from the physiology of muscle growth, the relationship between intensity and volume, as well as program design. So there are going to be three presentations, two hours long. It's only 25 Australian dollars to sign up, and I'll put the link in the description box below. Again, the online mentorship course is filling up fast for coaches who are looking to raise the standard of their practice, learn a little bit more, and get to understand the science and its application uh, to, on a whole new level. You don't want to miss out on this. We have 12 modules with over 40 presentations from some absolute juggernauts in the industry, and you guys will want to enroll to secure your spot, so be sure to do that. Uh, the link is also in the description box below. Finally, the Ultimate Evidence-Based Conference. We have our 10 presenters confirmed. The venue is secured at Melbourne Convention Center. It's gonna be an absolutely monster weekend. Over three days, we've got Mike Isratel, Eric Helms, Brian Miner, Danny Lennon, James Hoffman, Gabrielle Fundaro, and Marta McDonald confirmed with Menno Henselman being our latest guest added to the list. So it's gonna be huge. It's being held on June the 28th to the 30th in Melbourne next year and make sure that you get your ticket before they run out. Uh, early bird tickets are now available so you can grab yours via the description, uh, the link in the description box below. And without further ado, let's get into this episode and guys, I really hope you enjoyed it and you took something away from it. So feel free to like it, share it, and hopefully we can spread the good word. You can uh, get straight into things and start off with just yep. a bit of background on yourself and then Eric you can introduce yourself again for probably like the 50th time this month on podcast <laughs> but why not but why not all right so so Jake yeah tell us a little bit about yourself what do you do doctor right yeah so um so I'm currently a I'm currently a lecturer in psychology at, at Deakin University which is in which is in Melbourne uh, Australia 
And um, so I just completed my PhD uh, last year. So I finished at the end of last year, which is nice. Um, uh, the relief of finish, finishing a PhD, as, I, as I'm sure you are well aware of, Eric, is, is quite is quite nice, and it's um yeah, it's a monumental task. So that was that was good, and I was lucky enough to to get a job, a full time tenured position at Deakin University as a as a lecturer, which essentially is um uh, is a is a split research and teaching role. Um, so. Just started there in 2018, and my primarily my my work is my research is on um, eating disorders, and I particularly focus on on treatment and and, um, and I guess the the things that are kind of keeping or maintaining the the eating disorder. So I've done a lot of bit, a bit of work in that area, uh, particularly focusing on I guess how good our psychological treatments are at the moment. Um, so I've been do, doing a little bit of work in this space for, for, for a few years now because um, that was what my PhD was on and I continued on the progress. And um, so this year I thought, you know, I was, I was hoping to, you know, to really amp up the research. So I applied for a, a fellowship um, at Deakin, which essentially the idea is that it would, it would buy you out of, of teaching a little bit so you can really focus primarily on your research. Um, so I was lucky enough to get that, which will commence in 2019, which um, which I'm very excited about. So yeah, I get two years of full-time research, which is nice, and um, I'm really hoping to to get into the space of because I'm aware of how popular mobile apps are now. Um, so I'm hoping to to devise a, 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 a brief kind of intervention. Uh, for people who are experiencing all these symptoms of disordered eating and these extreme body image concerns. So the idea is that we want to use the stepped care approach in treatment, which basically means that because resources are so limited in terms of seeing a, a, you know, a professional psychologist or a psychiatrist, um, there's not enough out there to, to help all of these people that are kind of afflicted by these you know, eating disorders or even not even an eating disorder, but even just experiencing the symptoms. Because we know that the, the degree of impairment is relatively comparable between, I guess, you know, what we call the sub-threshold cases versus the, the diagnostic cases. So if we are able to just have kind of a, a very accessible mobile phone-based app that, would, that has components of evidence-based interventions, um, then hopefully we can reach a much broader audience. And the good thing is, is in this space, there's really nothing being done on at the moment, so, uh, which is quite nice. So if I look, you know, I always try to compare the eating disorder field to, to depression and anxiety. And depression and anxiety is so far ahead of what's happening in the eating disorder field at the moment. Um, so as a result, I'm hoping that, you know, this is just one small step forward um, to not only enhancing, you know, my, my, my research career, but also, um, I guess, you know, providing uh, evidence-based uh, interventions to people, I guess, who are really at need and to just, you know, to the general public at kind of hopefully uh, free of cost. So that's a little bit of a background about myself. So I've been doing a little bit of work in this space and, you know, it's kind of a, it's a bit of a passion of mine and, um, Jacob and I, Eric, have had long conversations about these types of things, uh, which have been nice, even at the despite um, being told to stop talking about it by other people at times. But it's um, that's a little bit, that's a little bit, um, yeah, a, a very brief summary about what's happening in my little world at the moment. <laughs> Jake's bubble, we call it. He doesn't get far outside of his bubble. <laughs> no, I certainly don't. <laughs> and um, yeah, Eric, I guess, uh, do you want to, you don't necessarily need to introduce yourself because I'm sure all the listeners are pretty familiar with uh, who you are and what you do, but recently uh, you've been 
quite actively uh, pursuing your reading and furthering your knowledge in relation to you know intuitive eating um, and just understanding you know the role of different types of dietary restraint and I guess do you want to outline what you've been doing of late and how this this conversation and uh, podcast came to be I guess yeah absolutely so um, first it's just really good to meet you Jake and uh, congrats Likewise. on PhD I, uh, I also finished mine, uh, technically graduated in December of last year, so we were probably yeah, graduating across the pond from one another at the same time. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah, for context, uh, we're releasing the second edition of my nutrition and training books, and specifically relevant to the nutrition book, um, while it, it was definitely there in the first edition, I've just become more and more aware of thinking about the potential for harm uh, when the advice is all based around quantitative information, which sometimes has an implicit uh, suggestion that you need to be tracking all these quantitative data points. And sometimes explicitly uh, for different sports, I would argue, um, there is a necessity, at least at certain stages, to track and quantify uh, variables that we are unfortunately finding out are at least associated with at this stage. Um, body image and eating disorder concerns and uh, just potential de de decrements to both psychological and potentially even physiological health depending on what occurs so uh yeah i've been intensely going down that rabbit hole like you said it's not that deep as of yet um to to really make sure that i can find the, the best balance between the necessity of a competitive physique athlete or weight class restricted strength athlete uh, or someone who recreationally wants to improve those things Mm. Uh, and balancing that with uh, best care and, and practice and consideration for someone from a holistic perspective, including their psychology. So that's been a challenge, but something that's really interesting. Absolutely. Awesome. That sounds great, yeah. I guess, Jake, uh, let's hand it over to you. Do you want to start defining uh, what uh, eating disorder is and what a body image disorder is and how we would uh, be able to recognize that as practitioners or for individuals out there who are listening who may feel like they could be on the verge of yeah potentially having one of these disorders yeah absolutely so i guess i guess with with eating disorders the definition is quite broad because it encompasses a a variety of different let's call them subtypes um so ultimately when we're talking about eating disorder we're talking about uh really disturbed eating patterns that that negatively impact someone's life. I think that's the critical component there is that it has to be associated with some degree of distress or impairment or something like that. Um, because that it's once uh, the, the, the initial thing you need to do is help people kind of recognize that what they're doing at the moment is a bit problematic. Um, whether that be their physical health, whether that be their psychological, social health. And oftentimes people don't um, don't really understand what, what's happening at the moment, which is understandable um, because there isn't that much kind of awareness or education out there relative. But then we can distinguish between multiple subtypes of, of kind of eating disorders. And you've got your standard anorexia nervosa, you know, that, that very emaciated look, um, extreme fear of weight gain. We've got your bulimia nervosa. Uh, which is, you know, as, as probably people are aware, the, the consumption of uh, binge eating. So binge eating, when we're talking about, um, we're talking about an objectively large amount of food. So I guess the standard, there isn't really a definition of what an objective 
large amount of food is and i'm sure that you guys when you you know you take um you hear your stories from your clients they'll tell you some of the things you've eaten and and i wonder if it kind of pricks up in your ears or whether that's kind of a, a big consumption or not but when we're, the, the typical definition is um is between one to two thousand that's what's typically used calories i should say between one to two thousand calories is what we consider an objectively large amount of food and I know people, and even myself, have, have downed a burger and a shake, which equates to nearly a thousand calories, doesn't it? So that's the def the definition we kind of formally use. But the critical component is that it has to be associated with a sense of loss of control. So that is the component that defines what a binge eating episode actually is. And then, so then we can distinguish between people with bulimia nervosa or binge eating disorder. And the, one of the core differences is. Bulimia nervosa follow that binge eating up with compensatory behaviors. So they would do things like they would vomit, self-induced vomit. They would um, you know, take laxatives or, or oftentimes they will exercise to the absolute extreme. Whereas people with binge eating disorder, they kind of stop at the binge. They don't follow up with these compensatory behaviors. And one of the two key differences between these subtypes is binge eating disorder isn't characterized by levels of restraint. So typically, people with binge eating disorder don't engage in a pattern of dietary restraint, whereas bulimia nervosa, they do. And there's consistent evidence uh, documenting that is that they don't, actually, they don't actually engage in that intention to restrict. So they're constantly overeating during their binge, uh, uh, between their binge eating episodes, and then they'll have repeated bouts of binge eating. So that's one of the, I guess, the critical components of, of or the different, the, the the differences between the two. But then that's not. But there are strict kind of diagnostic criteria between these subtypes. So, for instance, you look at the DSM and it says the person must have been doing it, for example, um, on average once a week for the past six months. A little bit arbitrary and a little bit vague because we know, and I'm sure that you guys have seen throughout. Um, uh, in practice, when you're you know dealing with clients, that people regularly binge, but they may not, on average, do it once a week. You know, they may come in and they they say, you know, I binged last week, and then, you know, a month's time they'll go, oh, I keep doing it. These people are still having considerable problems and distress associated with their episodes, and they're they're not feeling good about themselves. So the eating disorders per se are just the tip of the iceberg. We know that disordered eating, I guess people who exhibit these symptoms but don't meet the diagnostic criteria, significantly outnumber the number of threshold cases we have. So I think estimates are roughly in Australia at the moment is about 20% of the Australian population have some form of or exhibit some form of disordered eating over the past year and many more experience extreme concerns about body weight and shape. And body image disorders aren't too dissimilar. So when we're talking about body image disorders, we're talking about things like body dysmorphic disorder. So, you know, that uh, you know, specific body parts are viewed as, you know, inherently disgusting and people go to great lengths to kind of hide it. And then we've got this relatively new conceptualization of muscle dysphoria, which I'm sure you're both well aware of, the idea that people um, don't feel like they're big enough, don't they? They're, they're, they don't feel like they've got enough, you know, um, uh, muscle tone or whatever. And they kind of call that the, the little bit of like the reverse anorexia nervosa, whereas anorexia is dying to be thin. Um, um, muscle dysphoria is trying to be a little bit more bulky and muscular. To be honest with you, I haven't read a lot of research on muscle dysphoria because I'm not too on top of that literature. Uh, but I guess they're kind of the small differentiations you need to make between those types of problems, I guess we could call them. Awesome. Awesome. And uh, yeah, I guess, Eric, um, let's now have a chat about how prevalent 
many of uh, those subcategories of eating disorder and body image disorders are with amongst you know the clients that you guys work with at 3DMJ, general fitness enthusiasts. Because I know that after hearing that, you know, pretty much a lot of my clientele would uh, would would fit the bill. <laughs> absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I, I would agree. Um, and when I wrote the, you know, so there's a different perspective I have as an academic versus a practitioner and an athlete myself who's probably maybe been clinical but definitely had disordered eating more than one time in my life. Um, academically, when I published the um, evidence-based recommendations for natural bodybuilding nutrition paper, I fought hard during peer review to keep in the psychological section because I thought there was some really important information in there. Uh, and at the time, a lot of this was stuff published in the 2000s and 90s. Um, some, somewhere around half of women who had uh, competed in, in physique sport had at one point in time uh, had an eating disorder. Mm. And this is according to survey-based data. So how often there are a lack of reporting or that self-diagnosis yeah. is inaccurate, I don't know. Um, and in men, it wasn't that prevalent, but it was still more than active controls. Mm. Um, and then really common was that a uh, preoccupation with food was reported by, I think, like 83% of competitors post-competition. And that, to me, actually sounds low, to be honest. Um, right. So, uh, yeah. Now, now as, as, my, as myself, I think I was legitimately experiencing borderline clinical uh, bulimia, just compensating with eating way less the next day or exercise, never, not actually trying to purge. Mm-hmm. Um, and definitely binge eating hand in hand with that, uh, in 07, I would say. Um, and then that was my first season. And then I've seen, man, I'd say more than half of my competitors have struggled with it to a point where it's really negatively affecting their lives. Not just like, man, those two weeks post show got out of hand Yeah. You know? or I had one, one really rough spell in prep. Um, so it's, I think it's incredibly common and, yeah, um, and which is which is why I think more more attention and awareness of it. I think much in the same way there's become more awareness of like traumatic brain image, uh, brain injury in in contact sports. Mm-hmm. I think I'm not trying to get people to turn away from from bodybuilding or anything like that, but I I don't want them to go into it without eyes wide open. I guess is the my goal. Yeah, 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 for sure. And like I remember Jake, we've spoken about this um, at length, but you know many of our early days in fitness um, exacerbated <laughs> a lot of these problems for you and I personally. We we are compensated with exercise, would restrict mm-hmm. our food. I remember eating you know less than fifteen hundred calories a day. You know, doing lots Going and lots of exercise, two runs a day, two runs a day, like super active, <laughs> all this kind of stuff, eliminating food, um, and that brought on. And I remember back when I was like sixteen or whatever it was. You know, I'd go for like four or five months without binging or cheating on the diet. And then all of a sudden, yeah. once a month, there'd be a binge. Then it was once a week. And then it became like really frequent. I like I started losing control of it. So I guess, yeah. do you want to now discuss what are some of the things that can lead uh, to people developing these eating disorders, uh, you know, specifically binge eating disorder um, and bulimia nervosa with the compensatory yeah. behaviors? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it, it's kind of tricky in your in your space as well because you know you're in the in the uh, I guess the the bodybuilding. Um, what you're trying to do is you know promote extreme dietary restraint or, or um, you know uh, worries about it. Not so much worries, but you know body checking, which we know is a little bit um, detrimental at times. So I can certainly appreciate the the the, tri- the balance that you're trying to trying to weigh up, and it's. Uh, it's great to see you taking this side on board, Eric, is trying to worry about the psychological health uh, in addition to, to the, I guess, the competitive nature of that. So that's really, um, that was really great to hear as well. Um, so in terms of what are the things that leads to these problems, um, well, it's, as I'm sure you can both appreciate, there's no single cause to anything, isn't there? Multi-dimensional, multifaceted, a range of biological, um, psychological, social and environmental factors can exacerbate it. We do have very robust risk factors that we have for eating disorders or even the onset of disordered eating. And those typically include your dietary restraint, but I'd like to conceptualize or differentiate between the two kind of forms of restraint we talk about in the literature at the moment. Um, and I'll talk about that in a second. So there's dietary restraint is relatively robust evidence showing longitudinal associations between um, early age of onset of restrictive eating and then later disordered eating patterns. Um, body image is a huge one. So body image concerns, probably the ro- most strongest risk factor for eating disorders and disordered eating. And we also have other things like really low cost low self-esteem and negative affects. So, you know, kind of depressive symptomology is also quite a big one, but they're all interrelated to some extent. They all kind of interact with each other to to promote the the onset, I guess, of disordered eating and eating disorders. But what is what we know are much more about um, are the things that are keeping it going. So I can imagine when you guys are, um, you know, you're dealing with these, um, your clients, for instance, um, I, I would dare assume that quite a lot of them have, you know, uh, concerned about their weight and shape, not so much concerned, but are maybe preoccupied with it a little bit, and they exhibit some kind of level of, of dieting. So what, what I like to kind of think about, okay, when it started, what's the things that are keeping it going? Because if we're able to address the things that are keeping it going, then theoretically, then we should be able to stop these unhealthy behaviours from happening. So we know the things that are uh, keeping it going are what we call these overvalued ideals about the importance of weight and shape. So ultimately what that just means is when people, um, and I'm, I'd like to know if you guys have encountered this in your, you know, your personal lives with your, um, with your you know, clients, uh, where people kind of equate their self-worth based on their ability to control their body weight and shape. So if they don't you know, hit a target of one kilogram lost in one week, then they're a bad person. So it's not that, you know, they could have, it's not that it's domain specific, it's they're a bad person in general. So that's what we call this kind of over-evaluation of body weight and shape. And that's the thing that is driving everything else. So that is the thing that is promoting this obsessive preoccupation with checking someone's body weight and shape. That's the thing that is kind of encouraging that strict and rigid dietary restraint and then ultimately and indirectly, that's the thing that is promoting these really disordered eating patterns. So that excessive compulsive exercise. So we know that exercise is healthy and everyone should do exercise to some extent. But when it comes to compulsive and excessive and dangerous, then it starts to be a problem. So then there's, then there's that. And then there's the, the restraint side of things. So the dietary restraint side of things. And the literature is really funny about dietary restraint. 
because it's kind of conflicted, isn't it? So there are some studies showing that, hey, it actually reduces levels of disordered eating and binge eating. But then there are also some studies showing that it actually promotes it or encourages it. So then kind of what's what's the answer? Well, there was, and I know you're aware of this, Eric, well, there was attempt attempt to kind of differentiate between a couple of different styles of restraint when we've got the rigid restraint and we've got the flexible restraint. So when we're talking about rigid, it's an all or none kind of view about food or eating. If you eat this bad food, it's all over. You've gone, um, you think you're a bad person, and as a result, that's more likely to lead to binge eating, whereas flexible restraint is a more graded approach to eating. Um, you know, taking into consideration the context of where you're in and in allowing yourself to enjoy a variety of foods, but with still a weight-related goal in mind. I think that's the important thing there, is that there's still some element of trying to lose or maintain weight or manipulate weight in some way, shape, or form. So then we get to this idea of this differentiation between flexible and rigid restraint. There is consistent evidence highlighting the detrimental effects of rigid restraint, consistent. I don't think I've come across one study showing that it's helpful in any way, shape or form. Flexible restraint, a little bit mixed. Mm -hmm. The interesting thing about flexible restraint is that the, particularly the newer research is showing very high relationships between the two which means that someone who exhibits elevated levels of rigid restraint are also exhibiting elevated levels of flexible restraint, which is a bit weird, isn't it? Because the way we think about it, and you know, the way um, you know, Jacob talks about it, and I'm sure you do as well, Eric, is that it kind of dis they're meant to be distinct things. They're meant to be distinct kind of forms of restraint, but that's not what the literature is showing at the moment. They're sharing a lot of what we call variants because they're highly correlated to some extent. What the interesting thing is, and cut me off if I'm blabbing on too much, but what the interesting thing is, when we remove the shared variance from um, the two components, flexible restraint actually shows to be beneficial. So what we've got essentially is, so there have been some calls in the literature to, to deter or detract from flexible restraint. They're saying, don't, don't do it, don't promote it, don't prescribe it or nothing. I don't think that's accurate to say because there's something going on. If we remove the component that is sharing its kind of uh, variation with rigid restraint, then it's actually adaptive. But the important thing is we don't know what that is yet. And that's yes. where the literature is kind of at at the moment. We don't know. We've got a measurement issue with, with flexible versus rigid restraint. And I know that, like I said, some people are kind of actively promoting against it. Like it's still some form of dieting. So don't, don't promote it. Don't do it. But we don't know just yet. So I think it's it's a little bit premature to discourage it. Um, but what we need to do is invest time trying to understand it. And that's what we're not at with at the moment. Um, so I think I think uh, to, that was a little bit tangential. But I think um, ultimately uh, we know that keeping these problems going are the rigid dieting, the really rigid, inflexible, dichotomous thinking related food rules and then the, the ideals about weight and shape. I think they're the critical things to look out for if you're dealing with someone who may be experiencing these issues, if that yeah. makes kind of sense. Yeah. And uh, Jake, do you mind if I jump in a little bit? Yeah, go. Yeah, the I, I know the exact papers you're referring to, and I've read them both. I think there's two that are now investigating that shared variance between, mm -hmm. uh, and there might be more, uh, between flexible and rigid restraint. and. Yeah, the it's important that the you can, I'll say, statistically disentangle that shared variance, 
but it's not quite clear what that would actually look like. What, what, mm. what does that mean for a practitioner? Like, sure, they, they share variants, and if you remove the shared variants, it's a beneficial thing, this flexible restraint. But because they're so similar and they share so much, what do we actually promote? And, you know, this is funny because it crosses into some of the discussions I've had where in the fitness and bodybuilding community, there is a group of people who would identify as IFYMers, if it fits your yeah. macros, people. And to me, uh, they see themselves as following a flexible restraint model, but I many times see it easily shift into being highly rigid, mm. where instead of a specific list of foods or, uh, let's say, um, arbitrary dietary rules, it's these numbers that are now put on a pedestal and are now a black and white view is uh, they are viewed with. So I, I, it does seem, at least from what I've read, that if there is a differentiating factor, it comes down to whether or not you have a, a black and white view about nutrition more broadly, whether it's numbers mm -hmm. or foods. Um, and yeah, so I think, I think this, the, the struggle we have right now as practitioners is we don't, we, we might know that flexible restraint could be a positive. Uh, and indeed, in people who have to lose weight, uh, let's say, a weight class restricted strength athlete or someone who is competing in bodybuilding, um, you can't not have a weight or shape related goal because that's yeah. literally the goal of the sport. Yeah. Um, but then it's like, okay, but then how do I use flexible restraint if I, if we don't even fully understand, uh, how they're entangled and not, which is, I think why it's really important that people like you are going to be doing this work. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's, that's the tricky thing, isn't it? Like, yeah, we're trying to put this into policy practice or, or, or general practice, but we're just, we're not entirely clear just yet. So I think it highlights the importance of additional, additional, you know, work to be done in this, in this area, but this in, yeah, being able to disentangle what is flexible restraint independent of rigid restraint is probably the priority. And that would hopefully answer your questions. But unfortunately, at the moment, no one's got that answer. There was one nice, um, there was one nice study that that attempted to do that. It was just a, it was the first study that that uh, examined these three components: rigid, flexible restraint, and also intuitive eating. There was the first to look at that, and I was really fascinated by this study of what they found. So they found exactly what I just spoke about, the real shared variance. And then, but once removing that shared variance, flexible restraint wasn't actually that detrimental. And they followed it up with a very post hoc exploratory analysis. They're like, they asked the question, okay, what is the item, the item in flexible restraint? So the question that is being asked, that is completely independent from rigid restraint. And they, they performed this, what they call a canonical correlation where basically they identified the one item that basically had no conceptual shared variance or overlap was the item, uh, I'm trying to remember it verbatim, was um, I, I, I still enjoy a wide variety of foods, but I still pay attention to my figure or something like that, which comes back to your point, Eric, of eliminating that dichotomous view of that food and nutrition. So I think that's certainly something that's onto that there. But that was a very exploratory kind of yeah. analysis that was done. So that was very um, tentative conclusions that uh, interpretations that they made. But you know, it's a, it's worthy of future investigation, isn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think investing effort towards trying to identify that, and then it comes back to your point. Well, what what should I use with my with my clients? Which is a very trick 
a tricky question to answer. And the the broad answer or the very simple answer is, geez, I'm not entirely sure at the moment. Um, yeah. But there are some there are some little things that you could you could follow. You certainly don't want to try to promote a dichotomous thinking uh, style, so that black and white view. Once you catch someone getting into that, then that should kind of prompt your attention as, okay, this is probably going to get really dangerous. Um, so what you can do is it's maybe at the moment, given the state of the literature, is instead of focusing what maybe what what to do specifically, also try to focus on what not to do as well. Uh, so that kind of dichotomous or black and white view. Um, I'm interested to know to know both of your thoughts on kind of the intuitive eating approach as well, because that's consistently popped up too in this kind of circle um, because by definition it is a distinct component from the restraint constructs we're talking about but um, but it's a little bit tricky trying to tell people to eat based on their physical and hunger kind of cues and if you've got such a in the bodybuilding sphere if you've got such a you know, a goal of getting to this percent body fat. I'm, I'm not privy to all the bodybuilding nuances, but if you're trying to get to a certain percentage of body fat, you're trying to get your, I don't know, your waist to a certain de- measurement, I don't know. But um, intuitive eating might not get to that goal, won't it? Because, you know, yeah. so it's So that's, that's a great question. Yeah, that's a yeah. really good question. So the, um, I've read a lot of the intuitive eating research because it is very interesting and it's having some very positive outcomes. But I think um, for everyone listening, intuitive eating, and of course, correct me if, if, I'm, if I'm wrong here, is a, is a weight-neutral approach. And if it's mm. at all about weight loss or changing your shape or uh, focused on body composition goals, it's inherently not intuitive eating. Absolutely. Um, and I think there are a handful of studies which show a successful adoption of intuitive eating does sometimes reduce body fat mass a little mm. bit. Yeah. Um, but for the most part, the benefits are in terms of uh, metabolic health. And psychological health, um, which makes sense, is they're typically done hand in hand with teaching people about healthy eating uh, and becoming more in tune with their hunger and satiety signals. So you're, you'd expect more regular eating behavior, uh, a greater adoption of micronutrient dense foods, higher fiber intakes, probably higher protein intakes, which would take care of the physiological side of it. And then obviously, someone who's become um, less focused on changing their shape and body weight and how they're not good enough. Um, uh, and then focusing more on just being in tune with their body, that would take care of the psychological side of it. And that is, I think that's fantastic. Um, now that is all well and good, but I see issues on two sides of the extremes. Now I'm not, uh, an obesity specialist by any means, but I do think, uh, it's worth pointing out that in some people with obesity, there is a, uh, a problem with some of the central processing of, of satiety and hunger, not in all people who are obese. Um, but in some people there is a lack of hunger signals and lack of satiety, well, I should say a lack of satiety signaling. So it may be very difficult, um, without some type of physiological change initially to, to get that, that awareness, but more prevalent to my experience area is that, um, another driver for disordered eating, uh, in, in competitive bodybuilders, independent of what background they had, uh, is just the physiological drive. Because to get to bodybuilding stage condition, you have to, to, to be competitive, you have to get down to what is essentially down to only your essential fat levels. And um, it depends a little bit on division, but regardless, you have to get down to truly unsustainable levels of leanness where you're exhibiting signs of relative energy deficiency syndrome, potentially female athlete triad. Even when you do everything right, 
uh, you're incredibly hungry. And we've got data from many, many other fields, uh, like the uh, infamous Minnesota semi-starvation experiment, where there is a independent biological drive towards disordered eating when you get that lean and you're that energy restricted. And it has, I think, obviously, there was different uh, diagnostic criteria in 1950. Um, but every single one of the participants who was in the Minnesota semi-starvation study presented with the diagnostic criteria for anorexia. And none of them had desires to get leaner. They just wanted to contribute to science. And the, and the goal of the study wasn't to get shredded. It was just, we're going to give you half of what you need to maintain your body weight. And we'll see what happens after six months, which is very similar to most bodybuilding uh, press. Yeah. Um, we just throw in some more activity through weight training. And that, so that, that shows us that part of a quote-unquote eating disorder is your body telling you in every way it possibly can, you need to eat and put on body fat and body weight and regain lost muscle mass. Yeah. So, of course, intuitive eating can't get you shredded. And that's yeah. not its intention. Um, yeah. What I'm wondering, though, is how, is it, how do we set up a bodybuilding quote-unquote lifestyle or big-picture periodization for a physique athlete where we rely on external food cues, things like tracking your body weight, looking in the mirror, uh, tracking yeah. your food as minimally as possible, and then getting back to and using for the majority of your career and life internal cues and having you aware of uh, hunger and satiety and using a blended approach at certain points to where you are modulating your energy intake based on hunger and satiety to achieve goals, not necessarily I'm trying to get shredded, but let's say you're trying to put on muscle mass and you know you need to be in a surplus. So yeah. instead of tracking a certain amount of calories in my fitness pal, you simply aim to be full, slightly yeah. uncomfortably full after every single meal. Mm -hmm. So it's not intuitive eating because you have yeah. the goal of actually changing your body mass, changing yeah. your shape, but you're using an internal cue to guide a behavior that should help you with your sport. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, there's a few things you said there. So I think it's important to distinguish between um, the, the bodybuilding population versus the general population because bodybuilding population, it's um, it, from my knowledge, my very limited knowledge in this, it's very uh, periodic, yeah? So you, you go through a period of, of dieting and then to get to stage ready. And then after that, then you have your off season where you kind of go back to normal, maybe? I'm not too yeah. sure. To, but, uh, to give you a real easy conceptualization of it, these days, standard setup might be you diet for six months. Yeah. Uh, you have some kind of <laughs> recovery phase, either intentionally or, or, or not intentionally, where you gain a lot of weight, either from purposely overeating <laughs> or binge eating and yeah. maybe hating your life or maybe enjoying your life or some combination thereof. You get something back to normal. And then hopefully if you're doing it right, yeah. you take at least a couple years off before you do it again. So it's this kind of like every other year, six month diet. Yeah, absolutely. So I think where the issue lies is when people go, let's talk about the general public, yeah? When they go on a diet, there's no end point to the diet, yeah? They just go on a diet, they've got no plan set in place, they just start restricting. They've got nothing in place on average. Um, they've got, they don't really have an endpoint, and also they're not being monitored or supervised. So bodybuilders typically have a coach, um, if I am correct, and there's, it's typically structured and, and period, period, uh, uh, periodic to, to some extent where you go through that. So I think it's not good to say that dietary restraint is problematic all the time. I don't think that's fair to say that. 
um, because there is literature showing that it does it, it, obvious, it promotes weight loss, although it's difficult to sustain the weight loss. But if we're talking about bodybuilders, the goal is short-term stage-ready weight loss, yeah? Because then yes. after that, then it's back to life, I guess. So I think it's bad. I think we don't want to make the assumption that any form of dietary restraint is problematic. And if we're looking at um, kind of this sport, um, what, what the what the key thing and what we've kind of looked at in the in the literature and found is that these things become an issue. So that the obsessive the, the tracking of the calories, the the, the frequent self weighing or the body checking. They become typically an issue when there's no supervision around the person. So I was uh, I was actually looking up this the other day because Jacob, uh, you know, he talked about some of the things that we we're going to discuss today, and I just wanted to refresh what was happening in the in kind of the self weighing and the and the the calorie tracking literature. So again, the issue is is that it's mixed. So some some research shows that um, it promotes harmful psychological distress. So these types of things that we promote as as bodybuilders, I guess, so that self weighing, body checking, calorie tracking, and there's some literature showing that it's not harmful. It's actually beneficial. What it looks like in the clear distinction between the research is that what seems to be happening in the studies showing beneficial effects is that there's some degree of monitoring or supervision by someone else. So someone else is kind of uh, taking care of them, if you will. And that kind of, uh, that's kind of suggesting a few things um, in that if someone's in, on their own doing these things, that is probably when it's going to be harmful because there's no structure, there's no, um, there's no education around these types of things. And as a result, people go in kind of uh, without any awareness of what's going on and they just follow what they read on Twitter or what they read on Instagram or something like that. Whereas when there's some degree of supervision, um, coaches, for instance, that are aware of these types of things and that they monitor them and track them and stop them when it's getting probably too problematic, um, then it seems like it's not as detrimental as what we think. It's actually beneficial in some stage. So I think it comes back to your point, Eric, is that it may be beneficial to move through these stages, move through the stages of restraint. But then what we all want to do is we want to make sure that that doesn't go on indefinitely. Because when it goes on indefinitely, then it comes back to that starvation stuff. Your body is just... It needs the, the the stuff to get back to. Um, I think the set point is theory is really outdated now, but you know it needs your stuff to go. Settling point. Yeah. Settling point. That's it. When I was in my second year, I could never understand the difference between. The two. Um, so, so what you want to do is once that kind of period is over, then I think it would be beneficial to transition towards eating towards more internal cues. But once you have your goals set back in place then I don't think it's an issue. I don't think it's an issue transitioning to to to, to, um, to some form of dietary restraint if you have a clear goal end date set in mind. I hope that kind of uh, answers your question a bit um, to that extent. No, I think that's really helpful. And it, it reminds me, there was a study I read where I felt like I was reading a bit of a biography. Um, <laughs> the title of it is Learning to Eat Again, Intuitive Eating Practices Among Retired Female Collegiate Athletes. And for context, from 2007 through about early 2012, I was using MyFitnessPal or FitDay yeah. or whatever software there was and tracking my nutrition, uh, either for prep or during these recovery periods or for the off-season. And that's, you know, that's, that's 
almost solid five years of tracking. And uh, so reading this paper, these were qualitative interviews, so mm -hmm. not quantitative information for the listener, asking uh, what it was like to retire. And for, for most of the women, uh, they were able to get back to more normalized, what we would describe as intuitive eating. Not all of them, but the majority were. And they felt the sense of freedom and they had to start learning how to pay attention to hunger and satiety versus having these external rules about what they had to do for their competition or what their coaches told them. And it just made me realize like there's a, there is a cost to being, you know, quote unquote, quantitatively optimal and that we sometimes forget that we have a really great homeostatic system called the human body, uh, which when it is finely tuned with itself can put you into, uh, you know, energy balance very well. And, yeah. um, Perhaps using some of those cues we have might even be better, uh, certainly psychologically, uh, than than you know j just using something external, which yeah. is um, yeah, which I think is a, a bias. I was I was against that idea for a long time, until I experienced it since since then. You know, now I only track when I have a goal that would push me beyond yeah. what yeah. my normal, like you said, uh, hunger and satiety signals might allow, if yeah. you will. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think that's the important component because uh, people just go into it with nothing in mind. They just go, you know, I'm going to go on a diet. I'm going to lose some weight, but there's there's no end state. So I think the you know having someone that can assist with those goals and really provide a clear structured program, I think that's where the evidence is saying then that's it. It can be very beneficial to the person there, um, but when it's not. Um, so that, that's certainly the case in the self-weighing literature. With the calorie tracking literature, that is that is in its entire infancy. So we yeah. just um, submitted a very, very basic paper for publication looking at MyFitnessPal use in men, just in a community sample, very cross-sectional basic stuff because I only identified, I think it was two or three studies that had done it before. So we just wanted to extend and see what happens in men. And we found consistent evidence that men men who use it at the moment, who say they're using MyFitnessPal, much more psychologically worse off than men who aren't using it. Very, very basic design. Um, and these were people in the community um, uh, who, who uh, on average, I would dare say, um, uh, maybe it's a, an assumption just saying that they're probably not kind of uh, being coached to some extent, um, but I can't confirm that. But ultimately, yeah, well, in, in that literature, we're seeing that there have been three studies showing it's detrimental, calorie tracking, whereas one study that showed it wasn't detrimental. And I looked at the three studies that did show it's detrimental versus the one study that did. And the, and the difference was in that one study, it was part of a, an intervention program where they were being monitored consistently via uh, researchers or kind of nutritionists, whatever. Whereas the other ones, it was just people in the community. So although, although there are inherent limitations to those community designs or those cross-sectional designs, um, it's worth exploring. It's worth kind of looking at, okay, is this also something that seems to be important, bit that you need some degree of, of, of coaching in order to track, your, to track your calories? And if so, is that kind of the mechanism that makes it beneficial rather than detrimental? Um, so mm. that might be uh, worth keeping in mind. But again, conclusions, strong conclusions cannot be drawn at the moment about that. It's just kind of a few hypotheses, I guess, put forward at this stage in time. Yeah, and um, yeah. I'm also familiar with those studies, and and uh, Jacob, I promise you'll get to speak at some point. Yeah, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm happy to listen, man. <laughs> uh, 
just just for for the, the listeners, um, cross-sectional studies are really useful hypothesis generating pieces because yeah. they show an association between two variables. But it's um, it's very difficult to uh, I would say technically not possible, although you can have strong indications depending on what you do. But very difficult to know the direction mm. of potential causality. So yeah. when we do a study or a study is done where um, there's a relationship between eating disorders and tracking with my fitness pal. We don't know if a bunch of regularly happy, normal, well-adjusted people uh, who have a normal relationship with food start tracking and develop an eating disorder, or if people with eating disorders sign up for my fitness pal yeah. and use it to track their nutrition. Absolutely. Um, however, in, in one of the studies that you were referring to, I believe they 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 only looked at people with eating disorders, and then one of the questions they asked them. Uh, was do you think tracking your food is contributing to your yeah. eating disorder? And I think over seventy percent of them said yeah. yes. Yeah. yeah. So, so if they're you should that. be concerned. Is at least exactly. what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. 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 Exactly. So regardless yeah. of the direction of effects, if mm. they're kind of reporting that, that's what's going on in them, and that's kind of the issue, yes. isn't it? Uh, yeah. yeah. So absolutely, it seems. To be honest, it seems much more plausible that um, people who have these problems already sign up for my fitness pal. In my opinion, I guess, rather than my fitness pal contributing to the eating disorder. Obviously, that can't be answered by the cross-sectional design. But in my opinion, I think it's the the the, the former. So the my fitness pal coming after the eating disorder symptoms. But you know, that's just my opinion. Um, um, well, that's probably. I, I, yeah. I tend to agree, but at the same time, I also think that we have to be very careful as coaches because a lot of people who come to us and have body composition-related goals, we're already looking at just a statistically greater chance of that person having a history with or greater risk for developing any disorders. So we don't know if using more and more tracking uh, can exacerbate it. And, and like yeah. you mentioned with self-weighing, we've actually got causational data going back to, I think, 97, showing yeah. there was a a group that, that basically tracked their body weight three times per week or one group that tracked their body weight once a week or maybe once every two weeks, if I recall correctly. But the group that tracked their body weight three times per week just got less happy throughout the whole study. Yeah, yeah. Right. yeah. yeah, yeah, so. yeah absolutely. Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> and Eric, did you want to, I guess, outline and propose your model of implementing uh, a flexible diet, um, you know, the stages of learning to swim and I guess... Uh, that's probably what you're going to be putting in the updated version of the nutrition uh, and strength pyramids. Is that correct? That that's a big part of it. But in another thing that I have that I'm adding to the the muscle and strength nutrition pyramid is uh, strategies to getting back to using internal cues. Um, so things like uh, I have I have a chart in there where external versus internal cues to help you lose body fat or, or modify your, your body composition, I should say, kind of have this inverse relationship as you go into the in-season and, and back into the, the regular season. Um, and then I talk a lot about ways of not using self-weighing or tracking at all if your goal is, if you're a recreational or lifestyle bodybuilder, yeah. if you will. So uh, things that are just less likely to have this ongoing emotional cost, things like changing behavior that should result in you having a diet more in line with what we know is optimal for, for body recomposition, uh, making qualitative assessments of progress, uh, or using uh, quantitative but not ongoing assessments of nutrition. So, for example, um, 
assessing your nutrition uh, portion sizes in a meal once versus tracking it all the time. Like going, mm-hmm. oh, is, that, is that an appropriate, you know, this standard, you know, deck of cards or the size of your fist kind of thing. That's a discrete mm-hmm. point of analysis versus this continual tracking, which in my mind at least would think would, would have more potential issue. Absolutely. So, yeah, well, that's good to hear that you, you agree with that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think moving towards a lot of those things. So I think my, my big picture conceptualization, and, and I think there needs to be more research before I can be too confident in this, is that uh, if I'm working with a general pop person who wants to improve their body composition, wants to be muscular, wants to be as strong as possible, uh, but doesn't want to get on stage or on, on the platform, uh, we start with initial education, and there may be a period of tracking just to help them understand the quantitative and qualitative side of nutrition. Like, what are my habits? What do I do? When do I eat? Why do I eat? Um, oh, wow, I had all those donuts at work. I didn't realize it. Um, what foods are, are dominating my diet? And then what macronutrients and micronutrients dominate those foods? And then we put tracking away and make some changes to the behavior. Um this is kind of going back to those learning to swim stuff that that uh, that I talked to you about, Jacob, and that we've talked about previously, uh, and then moving just towards habit-based changes and taking a handful of habits and trying to incorporate them. Like I'm going to have a structured meal plan, not like what meals I'm going to eat, but I'm going to eat at these given times, and yeah. there's going to be a serving of fruit, vegetables, and protein at each one, and then I'll use hunger to modulate my intake, things like that, you know, um, and then assessing things like performance and just um, do I see myself getting more muscular globally over over larger periods of time. And that might look a lot different than a bodybuilder who indeed is going to have to get to the point where they are whipping out the food scale, the body weight scale, uh, the pictures in the same lighting and and tracking their nutrition and making adjustments based on five gram allotments of, of carbs and fat. You know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's funny that you, you talk about this because what you are describing to me sounds like this relatively new area called um, called eating competence. So I'm not sure if you guys have heard of eating competence, but um, it's actually a, a a relatively new field of, of research. So we've actually we've just um, uh, drafted a paper just trying to disentangle eating competence relative to flexible, rigid, and intuitive eating. We also found eating competence, which um, uh, uh, which was very consistent with, with what you were talking about, Eric, the idea of kind of also introducing new foods, but you know, eating at regular scheduled times, which by definition isn't intuitive eating. So it must be some form of different kind of uh, style, I guess. Um, but uh, my memory is very hazy on this eating competence because it's been a while since we, we worked on that paper. But all I will say is maybe check out a little bit of that literature too because it sounds very similar to what um, you were saying uh, uh, just in that in that moment there. But I think that's a, I think that's a that's a great idea in terms of um, you know trying to differentiate between um, people who are really strict bodybuilders who have very specific goals in mind versus your layperson who wants to get stronger maybe wants to lose a couple of kilos because it's not a problem if people want to lose a couple of kilos. You get you get really opposing views where you have kind of the the um, the weight neutral people who who just say any talk of weight loss is shunned. Like I will not speak to you if you talk about any weight loss versus people who have that opposing view. But there's not really a middle ground at the moment. People are just it's like the left and right in politics. Yeah, they're just at each other. There's not really any middle ground. 
And I think what you're trying to do is bring that middle ground together, uh, which is excellent because no one is doing it at the moment. So I think it's certainly um, certainly worth uh, considering um, how we can how we can bring the two together because um, inherently they're both if they're done correctly they're both not they both don't have to be harmful to the person or to the client that you're dealing with. So uh, yeah, I think um, I think transitioning through those particular stages, depending on the person's goal, but ensuring that uh, kind of you're you're guiding them through that, or if they have a resource like you're putting out, Eric, um, is very I think is very important uh, to promoting well-being, promoting health and well-being, and not exhibiting these these problematic behaviours that we are constantly seeing. Um, uh, throughout uh, society, I guess. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. And uh, yeah, Jake, final question for you. What is your advice uh, for coaches who have athletes or clients who are experiencing uh, some of these disorders? Obviously, they should refer them out to a registered uh, yeah. psychologist. Yeah. Um, but what, what, what are some other ways? Because realistically, as you know, there's, there's a lot of barriers between individuals actually going to seek help because there's a lot of stigma around the idea that if you see a psychologist, there's something wrong with you, all those sorts of yeah. things. Um, so what can a coach do in the interim if they are working with someone uh, who's experiencing eating disorder symptomology? Yeah. Well, I guess the, the very general or simple answer to that is education, like educating the, the client what's happening. So we talked earlier about the kind of the two things that are, that are keeping the problem going. And one is body image related and the other is diet related. So in terms of the body image related, you'll see um, if people who are checking their weight, they realize, I remember, you know, I remember I did, Eric, I did Jacob's 10 weeks to, <laughs> 10 weeks to lean a few years ago. I actually did quite well. Um, and there are some weeks when I didn't, I didn't reach kind of my goal of, of, um, of losing a kilo, for example. And you know, you'd get down at yourself, wouldn't you? You'd feel pretty crappy and you're like, well, what's the point in doing this? So, you know, as as a coach or someone who's dealing with this, um, educate, you know, the idea that weight fluctuates. What you wanna do is focus on long-term trends. Because if, if you plot your weight, if you're going on kind of a, you know, a relatively restricted eating pattern for a certain goal, and if they don't lose weight in one data point in one week, look at what's been happening the weeks prior to that. So what, what, what you'll typically find or, you know, what hopefully what you find is that there's been a, you know, a slow decline of weight, which is consistent with the goal. You don't want to lose weight too drastically, I assume. Uh, but, you know, educate, focus on long-term trends, for instance. Or the idea that, you know, I know that you do this, Jacob, very well, is that educate that there's no food that is inherently bad for you. It all depends on the context, yeah? Although a donut would have 500 calories relative to, you know, uh, oh God, a massive bowl of vegetables, you know, the vegetables will fill you up. The donut won't. Got the same amount of calories, just to say, depending on the size of the vegetables. But just educate the idea of that there are no foods that are, that are particularly problematic or harmful. It all depends on the context. And what you want to do is don't put a label on foods or don't, you know, if you see people avoiding certain foods, then that's your kind of uh, trigger to go, okay, this probably isn't going to be beneficial for you, uh, not only in terms of your weight-related goals, but what's going to happen after you reach those goals. So I think the very, very broad answer is just 
kind of educate people about, you know, the natural processes of the human body um, and, and, you know, and that, that would ideally hope that get them to learn about, you know, okay, I can do this another way and still achieve my goals. And this other way is, is much more healthier than if I took the more regimented approach. And there's no doubt that you you do this, Jacob, and I'm, I'm almost certain that you do this, Eric. There's no doubt that you guys already do this. But if we take the vast majority of, of health coaches, I don't know if they do do this. You know, you look at uh, your, your, your standard personal trainer, for instance, um, on Instagram that you might see, I'm not sure that they would do this. I, I would dare say that, you know, a few of them encourage this particular problematic pattern. So getting the word out and ultimately educating, I think is is the very simple answer um, to go by um, without me trying to delve in a little bit further um, via the literature. Uh, I'm not sure if you agree with that, Eric, or what, what would you think about that? No, I do agree with it. And um, to if I was going to leave any parting wisdom to competitive bodybuilders or weight class restricted strength athletes or their coaches, I would say um, going back to what you originally talked about with some of the roots of eating disorder is uh, if you're not achieving your weight shape related goal uh, that you are see yourself as a bad person. The way I see that manifest in, in the sport is that without performing well or improving, you don't see that you have membership as part of this group and that's where you get your yeah. validation from. Yeah. And I think it's really important for coaches and competitors to understand that you need to have self-worth outside of your sport. Yeah. Um, and uh, that if you can focus on just simple improvement and enjoyment of the sport, uh, you will get just as far as if you yeah. base your entire life on it, probably farther because you won't burn out. Um, yeah. so, so one is divorce your self-worth from your sport, you know, appreciate yourself getting better and having being competent in the task. But I often tell, and this will appeal to Americans, but not necessarily everyone else. I often tell my bodybuilders that, hey, you getting striated glutes or a vein in your abs or your hamstrings is like hitting a 90 mile per hour fastball. It shouldn't be seen as something that makes you a better person or actually like, oh, I, I count in our community. I, I should be respected. It should just be seen as an athletic feat. Uh, yeah. And like a baseball player who is going to probably get a rotator cuff injury at some point, there yeah. can be problems associated with that, but they're not yeah. related to your self-worth. So I think that's step one. Uh, and then step two is just simply to spend the least amount of time and, and the least effort, not effort, I should say, but only the necessary time tracking, weighing yourself and your food as needed to reach your goals yeah. should be implemented. Um, and that's kind of, that's going to look very different for every single individual, but I think that's still probably relevant yeah. to almost everyone. Uh, uh, yeah, I 100% agree with that. It's funny that you, the first point that you brought up, that is that is literally what we do in eating disorder treatment. That exact thing of trying to trying to limit the amount of self-worth dedicated to weight and shape and then trying to broad, broaden other areas of life. That is that is the exact thing that we do, and that's kind of the hypothesized mechanism of action. So uh, it seems like you, you know, you're all on top of this literature already, which is which is excellent. Um, and there's, yeah, it's, it's, it's literally the goal of what, what we're trying to do at the moment. So I think implementing that into the, um, into, you know, that your clients is, is, phenomenal because I dare say a lot of people wouldn't be doing that um which is yeah it's it's certainly um hopefully other people can follow in both both your footsteps um because it's certainly a great great thing to um accomplish I guess yeah awesome and Jake where can the listeners find you 
Oh, well, <laughs> 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 um, he just got he, a website, guys. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's actually jakelinadam.com. Now he's um he's 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 taking a bit of the Mickey because um a mutual friend created a website for me the other day, <laughs> and now we're trying to promote it a little bit. So come and join. I'll uh, I'll show you all my stuff. But um. No, um, just just follow me on. Uh, I don't know. I don't really you don't have keep in touch with social media. Re- too research much. gate. Search Jake Lenard on research, research gate. gate. I should have just told them. Absolutely. <laughs> research gate. Oh, my new website that hasn't been uh, that hasn't been looked at yet, but I will get to that. And um, yeah, so I awesome. think that's awesome. And yeah. guys, you know where to follow Eric. Make sure you check out all of his stuff and stay tuned for the Muscle and Strength Pyramids December, Eric. Yep, that's the game plan. It'll yep. be launched either late this year or early next. Awesome, awesome. Guys, thank you very much for joining me today. It was an absolute pleasure, and I hope everyone got a lot out of this, and I'm sure they did. Thank you both.